Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Hello and welcome to Transporter Lock episode number 65 for Saturday, November 14th, 2020. I'm your co-host, Chief Engineer Ken Gagney. And I am Captain Sabriel Mastin. It's good to be back. Good to be back. Captain, we are in a much better place mentally and emotionally than we were when we recorded this show a week ago. Oh, that's for sure. <laughs> we still got a lot of battles left to fight, but I feel like at least we're winning the war. Uh-huh. <laughs> So, we are here this week to talk about Star Trek Discovery, Season 3, Episode 5, Die Trying. And this is the episode where we finally get Discovery and the 31st Century Federation reunited, and they go on their first mission. Very exciting. So, that's the TLDR. And, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm just, uh, I was going to add to it. Like, last week you were talking about, oh, I wonder if we're going to get to the Federation next week. And I had seen the preview, and so I was like... <laughs> I suspected they would get to the Federation. I wasn't sure what kind of a welcome they would get. I thought that the Federation might be the bad guys, kind of like the Vadresh that we saw in Calypso. Yeah, we're, we're kept a little, it's still a little mysterious, but they seem to be okay. Yeah, yeah. And when I say we saw in Calypso, I mean, it was implied in Calypso. We didn't actually see the Vadresh. But in this episode, Die Trying, it starts off basically with. <laughs> The Federation expecting them, so they've been hailed and said, okay, you can come on in. And the episode opens with a whole lot of Easter eggs. Or Sometimes we end this podcast by talking about all the Easter eggs we caught. It's kind of hard to ignore such a bounty of Easter eggs at the very beginning of the episode. So what are some of the things that you noticed, Brie? Oh, gosh. Well, here, like, right away, like one of my favorite things about Star Trek is the ship porn. And here they just like front-loaded that front and center. Uh, here you go. Here's the ship porn. Here's everything you missed. Uh, <laughs> in the last 900 years, 1,000 years, uh, have fun with it. But now, now, what would you describe or define as ship porn? Oh, ship porn. Ship porn. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> ship porn. Um, is people just like f- draw fan art. People just love drawings and schematics of ships. Like even me, I'm watching Discovery. Like even this episode, Saru's in his office. I can see the schematic of Discovery in the background. I'm watching that stuff. I just love that stuff. And that's ship porn. Like, like, we get to see the 3D art, the, the sites, views, like everything. I just love watching, looking at the ships. Yeah, I have the technical reference manual for the Enterprise D, and I have the wall calendar ships of the line where every month it's not a different character or alien or planet or episode. It's just a different ship. You know, it's, it's just cool to look at this futuristic technology. Yeah. And so the one, the big one, because Kirsten Beyer is the biggest Voyager fan out there, one of the showrunners or principal people behind Discovery is a huge Voyager fan and writes countless Voyager novels. She wanted to put front and center the USS Voyager J. Uh, <laughs> like, even had the horns from the theme song a little bit in there. She's like, bam, here's Voyager. And they're like, even stop and look at the traditional view that we're used to seeing the Voyager original. No bloody A, B, C, D, E, F, G, <laughs> Or no, um, HRI. <laughs> but uh, like the same view we're used to seeing, the right front and center with the numbers on there. And they stop and like Tilly even comments on it. And like, we'll have to hear those stories. And like, yeah, that's Kristen Bayer talking, not, not Tilly. <laughs> <laughs> and one thing you have to remember is that 
at the time that Discovery was launched, the, the ship, there was no Voyager A. So they don't know anything about this Janeway crew that went to the Delta Quadrant. So they, this ship, they're not commenting on the fact that it's a Voyager. They're commenting on the fact that it's a J. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> and I don't know, maybe the J is, you know, they might have just kind of calculated a timeline, but it could be either a reference to Enterprise when they had the Enterprise J and or Janeway. Oh, because the Enterprise J was during the Cold, uh, the Temporal War, right? Yeah, and so it right. could be actually could be both, like or nothing. It could be just like, hey, let's pick a cool letter. But I mean, they usually do things with some intent, so it could be. I think it's a little bit of both. Well, even I was thinking the letter J. So Voyager, the TV show, is set, let's say, like 150 roughly years after Discovery, and so that would make it 780 years for them to go from no letter at all. To J, so that'd be like eleven or twelve generations. So that's like seventy years per generation or so. That's a long time for a single ship to be flying. I mean, how many enterprises did they did just Kirk go through? He was on three different ones. Yeah. Huh. So I guess Voyagers are long-lived ships. Uh, Voyagers seem to must have exploded more because Enterprise is at D when by time and E by the time Voyager was around and uh. Voyager already has J. J. They have the Enterprise J and the Voyager J at the same time, roughly. Man. Right. Uh, okay, we're going to semantics. Uh, there's so much more <laughs> shit porn here. There was a really cool one I think you noticed, too. Well, the one... Actually, I think the one you want to talk about is the one you noticed. I didn't notice it at all until you brought it up. Uh, the Nog? Yeah. A little nod to Aaron Eisenberg, who passed away this last year. Yeah, the USS Nog is named after the Ferengi character from Deep Space Nine. And then I looked up my memory Alpha, and the class of vessel that it is, it's an Eisenberg-class starship. And that's, oh, that's named cool. after Aaron Eisenberg. That's actor. really cool. That's really cool. Yeah. And it makes you wonder, what did Nog the character do to get a ship named after him? Yeah, it was, maybe it's a ship of Ferengi. And oh. Yeah. Oh, that's true. Because you know, at first I thought, Bree, that's really racist. But then I thought, wait a minute, Starfleet does have like Vulcan science vessels, uh-huh. so why not? I wonder if this implies that the Ferengi joined the Federation. Uh, could be, or could be just. I mean, in universe, it could be that. It could be just like, hey, this is the first person of this group to join the Federation. Let's honor them. Well, in that case, there should be a USS Worf. There might be, or there might have been. <laughs> And there should have been a Worf TV show, as we all know, but that never happened. No, sadly. Uh, there was another ship called the USS Armstrong, which when I first saw it, I thought, well, clearly that's named after Neil Armstrong, the first person to set foot on the Terran moon. And I still believe that's likely the case. But then it also occurred to me, it could be Vaughn Armstrong, the actor who has been in TOS, TNG, DS9, Voyager, and Enterprise. He's played 12 different characters, most notably Admiral Forrest on Star Trek Enterprise. And that character, of course, was named after DeForest Kelly, who played Bones McCoy. But however, that actor is still alive. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, you said TOS? Yes, he's been on every live-action Star Trek series except Discovery and Picard. I didn't think he was on the original series. Oh, you're right. I'm sorry. He was not in TOS. He's not that old, but he has played 12 characters on four different live action series, TNG, DS9, Voyager, and Enterprise. So that's still quite the run for a single actor. Yeah. Uh, he's he's so cool. I really hope they squeeze him in somehow. I know he'd be all for it. I mean, it, it, it's more of a fan service, though, at this point. 
than anything, but whatever, whatever. It'd be cool. Hey, you know, in the Terminator series, based on which movie or timeline you're adhering to, the T-800 or T-101 wasn't modeled after Arnold Schwarzenegger. It was modeled after a character like who was involved in the development of the robots, like somebody working at Cyberdyne. Or kind of like in DS9, how we learned that the EMH was modeled after Dr. Zimmerman. So why can't they have a hologram, which, as we saw, are clearly important characters in the future, modeled after some historical character? I would not be surprised if we saw, like, a holographic representation of Commander Riker, because he's been on every show. Why not this one? (laughs) I think you would love that so much. (laughs) (laughs) Like, oh, I'm the Riker J. Why not? (laughs) So, uh, Are there any other ships you noticed? Uh, Those are the ones I noticed. I I got a kick out of talking about uh holographic ship hulls yeah wow uh so that could mean that could be a little vague so if we ever get to see it we need to see what it actually means because you know, i could see like the internals are holographic i mean we, or the federation has finally fixed the problem of power failures otherwise the, hol- if the holodeck wall of your the outside wall of your holodeck ship disappears uh you wake up dead <laughs> that would be problematic. Yeah, they, I would, there would probably need to be some physical component somewhere in the ship. Yeah. Uh, they mentioned organic hulls, and I wonder if that's a natural evolution of the, what was it, the neural gel packs that Voyager yeah. had? Yeah. Or uh, species 8472. Who knows uh, if that's any uh, connection. And... That's right. They had bio ships as well. Yeah. They also observed some neutronium hulls, and I'm not going to be an exhaustive reference to every reference of neutronium in Star Trek history. But the two that I want to mention are the doomsday machine from TOS was made of neutronium as well as the Dyson sphere in TNG had a neutronium alloy hull. So this is a substance that in the old days, the Federation and Starfleet were not capable of artificially manufacturing and they suspected it was even beyond the capabilities of the Borg. So apparently by the future, Starfleet finally cracked that code. Uh, that's really cool to see just the advancements in tech, even if it's kind of, it's gibberish, but it's still kind of <laughs> neat. It's still kind of neat just to see like, hey, yep, we're advanced more. It's in not ways gibberish that we to you and me. <laughs> True. And then there was also many references to familiar aliens and alien worlds, especially once they stepped foot on the, the Starbase. I noticed when they first set foot and the camera is sort of like behind a visual display looking at the characters walking down the corridor toward the camera. And there was a brief... The only word I could make out was the word Kazon. Yeah, I, I wrote a few of these down that I caught. There was uh, the Kazon clan form. There was a reference to Talax. Uh, there was a reference to the Founders' homeworld. One, two, three, and four. Where did you uh, see all these? Uh, they were on there, but they were kind of blurry... Or depending on maybe your screen size, I don't know, but they're all there on the same page, quote unquote. Uh, just wow. like the founder one was on the right side of the screen. The Delta Quadrant stuff that we know is on the left. And there was also a reference to Federation Deep Space Outpost 36. Is that a familiar outpost? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, okay. but it's but it exists, and so it's neat. Uh, it's, uh, it's to me this it's just this is a more or less inconsequential, but also sh- for the viewer shows like, hey, it looks like the Federation actually got that far back out into the Delta Quadrant. Yeah, well, in the books, didn't they have, uh, didn't Voyager go back to the Delta Quadrant as some sort of yep. a Federation ambassador? Yep, yep. Uh, Project Full Circle. Oh, they went back so- with the transwarp drives. 
See, I didn't read those books. So this is, I think this is stuff I've only gleaned from co-hosting with a, sh- a show with somebody who knows more than me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the, all that stuff is back to Kristen Beyer. Kristen Beyer. Yeah. And so you could see her all over the stuff. And she, she loving, she's loving being able to put her, the stuff that she wrote in beta canon into actual canon. Oh, yeah. I love it when that happens. Like, I think, uh, I mean, that's how they incorporated the Andorians being two different colors, because that was from the animated series, which was not canon. And then uh, there was in Star Wars, wasn't there, I, f- I forget his name, an admiral, a bad guy from the post original trilogy books, who they recently made Admiral Thrawn. Thrawn, Thrawn. yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so I haven't read the original books. I haven't seen the animated series, but I heard when he first appeared in the animated series, like Star Wars fans lost their collective <laughs> crap because they're like, oh my God, this is a beta canon character from novels written 30 to 40 years ago. And now he's real. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, I live with someone who recognized it. Yes, it was a big deal. <laughs> I need to go read the original books in which he appeared. I think I have the paperbacks in storage. It's been on my to-do list. I heard they're good. Let's see. I, so clearly the Federation has ebbed and flowed. It's shrunk and expanded, or not necessarily in that order. They, I don't know if these aliens that you mentioned, the founders, the Kazon, Talax, if they are just species they've encountered or if they are members of the Federation. But we do know that the Kelpian homeworld and the Barzan homeworld have both joined the Federation at some point. Whether or not they're still in there, we don't know. Are these... Now, the Kelpians clearly are new to Discovery, but Barzan, is that something we've encountered before? Yeah, they were in TNG. Uh, They're the people who had the Barzan wormhole where the Ferengi went into it and appeared in the Delta Quadrant on Voyager. Oh, were they using the little breathalyzers even back then? Uh, Gosh, I can't remember the faces. To be honest, I can't remember the episode too much. Huh. But I can imagine this is an extent uh, ex- extension of that. So I'd have to look at that, but I don't remember. Okay. Wow. Yeah, I did a little bit more research on Memory Alpha. And apparently around the time of Star Trek First Contact, the Federation consisted of 150 worlds. In this episode, Die Trine, we learned that at its height, the Federation was 350. So they'd more than doubled at some point in the last 900 years. But now they're down to a tenth of that. They're down to 38 homeworlds. And as you noted, there may be more, but since they can't travel to them, they actually don't know how those planets are doing or if they still consider themselves to be in the Federation. Yeah. So, oof. <laughs> I'm curious, though, what is the correlation between the burn and the apparent lack of subspace communications? Why can't they communicate via subspace anymore? Yes, um, hmm, that's a good question. I hadn't really thought of before. I wonder if maybe that will get answered because, yeah, because subspace just, yeah, that hasn't changed. I mean, Michael said she contacted Terralisium, but it took forever to get a message back. That's also weird. I don't know. Maybe maybe relay stations blew up as well, but that doesn't make sense either. I don't know. Yeah, because subspace is not run on dilithium. We know from TNG that depending on how the dilithium-powered warp core is manufactured, it can disrupt subspace. And we got a hint of that in the first episode when Booker said that the Orions had destroyed some subspace. But to suggest that that happened on such a widespread fashion that no subspace communications are possible anymore, we haven't seen evidence of that. Maybe it's because dilithium-powered stuff doesn't necessarily meant it made warp drive do the thing. 
maybe it was just a primary power source. And so when that power source poofed, uh, it made it hard, slower. Maybe. Hypothesis, throwing it out and there. I don't know. Maybe maybe that explosion of dilithium did damage subspace. That seems reasonable. Yeah, I was just thinking, like, if we just... If we just like suddenly lost petroleum here and just poofed all one day, just poofed. Like, I mean, we, we'd come up with, we have our alternate power sources. So we could, st- and we still have the satellite, so we could still talk to each other. We just couldn't get there as easily. Mm. And so, I don't know. It's just weird. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that before. However, speaking of the Orion's possibly damaging subspace, we got another reference to the Andorian Orion Syndicate, which was running the market that we saw in the first episode apparently they're still active in this part of where the federation is located as well and they're called the emerald chain yeah i had to double do a double tape because the villains in my D campaign are called the emerald claw and so i was like what <laughs> did i hear that right <laughs> and also there is a series of uh city parks throughout boston which are called the emerald necklace huh and I had only learned of that phrase like 10 years ago, despite growing up in Massachusetts. And I was like, wait, the Emerald Necklace? Is this some sort of like the Queen's jewelry that's on display at some museum? No, it's it's parks and the Emerald Chain. I mean, okay, Orions are green and Dorians are not. They're blue. <laughs> so why is this the Emerald Chain? Maybe maybe the yeah, Orions created it. And then Dorian's like, hey, can we get in on that? And it's like, sure, you're our chain of planets now. <laughs> And they are run by somebody named Osira, I believe. Osira, yeah. Or Osira is at least a big name in there. It's a new name for us this week. So is I think the Emerald Chain. I don't think it's been named before. No, I don't think so either. Uh, in Memory Alpha, it says Osira was the leader of the Emerald Chain. And then Emerald okay, Chain. Okay. Uh, that, it says that the Mercantile on Hema, which was the first episode, was operated by the Emerald Chain. I don't know if they're inferring that or if it actually said so in That Hope Is You Part 1. I don't remember hearing that, but since it lacked context, I might not have just paid attention to it. Yeah, I guess I uh, to go back. But yeah, I, th- I think it's just I, th- I think it's just refer- making a assuming because yeah. of what we saw. But hey. One thing we do know, though, is that Osira is not some sort of Ryzen party drug. <laughs> I love okay the debriefing scene i thought it was great i love <laughs> well, it well let's talk about it so they cut they come on board and since as we know from the end of the last season there are no records of discovery or control they all got wiped to preserve the future so that means when they show up in the future the federation has no record of them and no reason to believe them so they need a full debriefing which they do person by person and we get little glimpses into those interactions yeah okay i did like the federation doesn't trust us because we don't exist like if we saw this happen to our crew discovery just all of a sudden like finds a ship that's thousand years old and but they swear that they're still in the same alliance i mean our our heroes would still do this weird this questioning too trying to you gotta prove it first and i'm glad we get to see the other side of that for once i thought that was really neat yeah we have episodes of star trek voyager tng where they find <clears throat> ships that have been lost for centuries but they know they've been lost because they have a record of them. And so it sparks their curiosity as explorers. If they found a ship that they had no record of, well, Starfleet is not generally in the habit of deleting records. So that would be suspicious. Yeah. So I, I like that. I like that turn of the normal we get in Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, and you like the debriefing scenes. Oh, God. I, was, I got a kick out of it. Because like, this is a moment for uh, for the show to 
touch the fourth wall and the ridiculousness <laughs> of the, of what happens on a week to week episode. Like Culber's like, yeah, I was murdered, but my murderer and I are good now. Or, <laughs> or uh, they're talking to Jet, and they're like, you were on an asteroid. She's like. Yeah, Commander Burnham fell out of the sky with Captain Pike. It was raining Starfleet officers. I'm like, <laughs> did you bring any snacks? I'm starving. <laughs> silly. It's like, yeah, my hair got blown out, and then I became a Terran Captain Dominatrix. <laughs> like, oh. And then, and then a moment later, Jet has snacks. <laughs> yep, yep. I mean, it's just like, I love that moment where they're touching the fourth wall. Like, mm-hmm. not, yeah, it's fun. Like, yeah, these episodes. Star Trek is ridiculous, but in some of the most fun ways. Well, it's kind of like the proverbial frog in the hot water, where we've been watching the show for three, for two or three seasons, and we know these stories because we saw them play out bit by bit. But now, here's an outsider who has no context and has been exposed to all of it all at once. And yeah, when you put it like that, it seems pretty unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my. And none. why was she so combative? She did not want to cooperate with this interrogation. She is playing the trope of, I'm a security officer. I've been captured by a potential hostile force. Hmm. It's just, it was the trope. And she's a security officer. I suppose. But, she, I mean, she was being interrogated by, quote unquote, her own people. So, anyway. Yes. She didn't want to be there. <laughs> Uh, let's see. And I I found their response. I found Starfleet's response to this. The suspicion was well intended. But then they decide, we're going to break up the crew and reassign you. And that I found a poor decision. Because if you have a ship of, let's say, 100 people who suddenly show up and you're suspicious of them, and you don't know where they're from or what their intentions are, are you going to sequester them all into one place? Or are you going to piecemeal them out into your entire organization where they can infiltrate? Like, no, you want to keep them all together because if you spread them out, now they're part of your entire system. They're embedded, and that seems ill-advised. It's ill-advised, but that's like one of the deeper things here we don't have all the information yet because Vance was very quick, very ready to start splitting them up immediately. And Saru was like, may I ask why? And Vance is like, nope. <laughs> uh, uh, and Vance just says, basically, like, just put the needs of Starfleet ahead of the crew. And like, so that just begs the question that we don't know yet. What is the Federation's mission is if exploration has taken a back seat? Yeah, they said that they've been playing triage for a long time, just trying to keep things running. And so I maybe it's just a matter of resource allocation and defense from the Emerald Chain. Yeah, because uh, so, I mean, it's something we're probably going to get answered very soon, but it's just something more is going on than we know. And it's not necessarily nefarious on, nefarious on the Federation's part. It's just we don't have all the pieces yet. I agree. Based on what we've seen in this episode, I'm not concerned about the Federation necessarily being the bad guys, with one possible exception, the guy wearing the suit and glasses. <laughs> yeah, glasses guy. We don't have a name for him yet. So I, call, I in our notes, I kept calling him glasses guy. Uh, he, he reminds me of the secret agents from Firefly who wore the blue gloves. <laughs> because this guy, I mean, he's wearing a Starfleet badge, but he's definitely not wearing a Starfleet uniform. Um. 
was it or what were those i didn't watch x files but there was that group of agents oh i didn't watch it either i don't know i i know through cultural osmosis there's this group like <laughs> not blue man group uh they even had their own show for a little bit before it was canceled uh but x files fans will know what i'm talking about um <laughs> but do you think glasses guy might be section 31 well as a note so like he's totally section 31 right or some variation thereof uh he why is this guy is a total weeb for second or terran or mirror universe like he is a total mirror universe fanboy yeah, even though there have been no crossings in 500 years, he has been fascinated by them ever since he was a little boy, he says. Yeah, and it's his birthday is is uh the day the First contact day. First contact day or it's a holy it's not it's a holiday in the mirror universe as well, uh which is amusing to me. Um, right, cuz we got to see how first contact played out in Star Trek Enterprise. Yeah. Um, I love that. <laughs> but this guy like he knew exactly how to deal with someone from the mirror universe uh, where he's, he tells Giorgio like uh, the only way to learn anything by you is the questions you ask me. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I thought those are, that's a great way to find out about someone. I hadn't really thought of it that way. Like, yeah, that's brilliant. Especially for someone as devious as Giorgio, who the holograms were even trying to, put her off on edge and she's basically like whatever get Uh, out of my face yep although she was rattled to learn that the terran empire collapsed centuries ago yeah we don't get reactions out of her very often and when she found that out she uh she paused for a second i mean it's subtle i oh to her facial expression definitely showed some concern yeah but it was gone instantly again like she's like oh can't show myself um but those questions, like I think it's important for us on what questions she asked him. Uh, which she, I wrote them down here. There's three questions here. She asks, who's really in charge now? And the burn was responsible for humbling the Federation. Who was responsible? Mm-hmm. And the last question was, the weakness of people is generally other people, isn't it? That last one came to turn around on her. Yep. Because... Now, this glasses guy thinks that there's somebody on Discovery who's important to Georgiou, who made her want to come to the future, to to fall in line with Discovery, as he put it. And we see Giorgio being somewhat contemplative at the end of the episode, where Michael goes up to her and says hello, and Georgiou is just frozen in place, completely ignoring everything. Yeah, she was just staring at the wall. Like, is that... For us, I think it's most commonly in TV shows and movies as like in shock. I don't know if that was quite here. But like when Glasses Guy asked her who on the crew is it you care about, she visibly swallows. And we know it's Michael. But here we see her just staring off like frozen in a frozen state. And like, what's going on here? She snaps out of it after a moment. And but even as she approaches the camera away from view from Michael, she actually has a look of like, what is going on? Um, yeah. yeah, it was it was weird because she is a character who is always in command of the situation, always knows every variable, even if the people around her don't. I mean, that's how she took down control. She yeah. manipulated him into the chamber that she had rigged specifically to destroy him. And so for her to just be standing there and not even aware that somebody is saying hello to her, you wrote in your notes that some people think she may have been replaced by a hologram. Yeah, online, people are wondering if she's been replaced because in her um, 
debriefing, there was this holograms and she made comments of like, are you just a hologram who thinks he's a person or a person who thinks he's a hologram? Uh, and people were thinking that, but they were, they were, in this episode, we had a number of holograms and they were very specific to show that holograms uh, don't blink, which she did here. And holograms have a different voice in the future. Like, 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 like in post-production, they added this weird echoing effect mm. uh, to them. And so I don't think that she's been replaced by any kind of fake thing. I just feel like glasses guy off camera got to her uh, because of that connection to Michael. I agree she's not a hologram. I would be disappointed if she was because we've seen enough of these people being substituted or taken over, whether it was Ariel or sorry, Arium or Control. But oh and by the way, what is your relationship with Control? We dated. <laughs> I love that reply. Uh, but I you know, you and I just analyzed how little emotion Giorgio showed during the interrogation, how she didn't want to play her hand. And it seems in sharp contrast for her then to be standing in a hallway surrounded by other people appearing visibly rattled for several s- moments. You know, that that is a weakness we're not accustomed to seeing from that character. So no. I don't know what's going on with her. Uh, there, Yeah, I, I it's one of those continuing themes that everyone keeps asking you, why are you here? Even Glasses Guy does. And we don't really have that much of an answer other than Michael. Do you think that there is another ulterior motive to Giorgio going to the future? I don't know. It's a hard one because what would she have to gain except just seeing more of the universe? Like she already knew about discovery. Is it the future to her timeline? Roughly, I don't know. Whatever, whatever. She's already seen a potential future. I don't know. Maybe she just likes seeing what's out there. I don't know. I mean, she. I mean, she got the Prime Universe's Defiant record, so she uh, knows what that future looks like. Yeah. Maybe but, she was. Yeah. Maybe she's been uh, time hopping much longer than we ever knew. We don't know or her maybe, past before. I, I think she's hoping to time travel back with future technology and use it to take over, like to rebuild the Terran Empire. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, there's a lot of unknowns with her right now, and I'm loving it because I love Giorgio. <laughs> and speaking of which, the Admiral said that the temporal wars that they fought, the conclusion was that people from the future wouldn't travel into the past. No, I think she said that – I'm sorry. I think he said that the, the people from the future shouldn't change the past, and people from the past shouldn't change the future. And I was like, but that's what the past does. <laughs> I mean, that is the past. Right. The past defines the future. And uh, okay, if you want to limit it to time travel, but I don't think that's what he said. I think he said people from the past shouldn't change the future. I'm like, the only way for them to do that is to not exist. And even then they're changing the future. So semantics. There's there's nuance there. Like, but then also like he was like, Discovery coming here, it's a crime. And I'm like, how would they know that? They weren't part of the temporal war and the temporal but then I'm like, well then time is it maybe it's three dimensional thinking. Time <laughs> It's another thing, like in a state, all in the same period. Even if if you have time travel, you are all in the same period, even if you're not. And it's all this huge metaphysical thing where, like, maybe the Federation signed the temporal accords. This Federation we know signed them, but then 
didn't i don't know time travel weirdest part of the job I mean, the federation <laughs> wouldn't exist to sign those accords if it hadn't been for the discoveries time travel yeah but it's time fourth dimensional thinking and Who what knows? is and what is the punishment for that crime when he says you being here is a crime they're not going to send them back because they don't have that technology yeah so who knows who knows it's it's one of those things that i don't think it's meant to have an answer i think it's one of those things that's supposed to be like we have rules and this <laughs> is our vague understanding until until we need to there are rules until we need to break them yeah. While they were on the Starbase, we saw very little of Adira. She went off for a medical scan, and we didn't see her again. Yeah, and I'm glad uh, Adira. There was a... We talked a few times about pronouns. Um, yes. And this week, uh, they revealed why uh, Adira is using she right now, even though it's supposed to be a non-binary character. And perhaps correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, if I misremember, but um, when filming this... Uh, the act- actor had not been out yet, and so they wanted to keep using she until they were ready to announce it to the family. I'm sorry, we didn't get any of this from the episode, did we? No, this is Star Trek. I, I wanted to bring it up because we are talking about Adira. Because right, so, okay. my confusion of using pronouns for a character that's supposed to be non-binary. Um, there was a Star Trek tweet it tweeted out about this. Like, It was a there request was- from her. There was a story on StarTrek.com, which I did not read yet. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, they weren't out yet, and the one this it becomes part of the story. Okay, so, but it hasn't yet. Correct. So it's okay. We we'll talk about the character Adira, as we know it, but uh, just I right. still use they them. <laughs> well, I mean, it makes sense, especially as you were discussing about Trill being a metaphor, where you have as a Trill have inhabited so many gender identities why would you feel tied down to just one when that is so limiting compared to the trill experience yeah 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 so yeah that makes sense that, that's coming happy we're gonna we're getting that story soon uh for yeah. anyone who's curious um but yeah why is adira goes for a med- medical scan and then poof gone what's up with that Maybe it's kind of like how on D Space Nine, the trivia for every almost every episode was like Jake Cisco does not appear in this episode. <laughs> you know, like I think there was a episode of TNG that Will Wheaton was supposed to be on, and he had to give up a film contract because he had to be on that episode. And then the only thing he ended up doing was just like sitting at the con. Oh my god! And he was furious, and it was clearly a power play by Paramount to say, "You can't go be your own movie star because we own you." And he was like, "I could have been a big movie actor, but I had to go sit at the con because my contract said so." <sighs> so maybe Adira. I'm not saying that this is ill-intentioned in the era of Discovery, but maybe Adira was unavailable for this episode. There's kind of like there was an episode of TNG that Riker was not on at all. And in the opening captain's log, Picard said, Riker has gone off to this conference, so I'm doing blah, blah, blah. Uh And then there's the opening credits, and it says, directed by Jonathan Frakes. (laughs) Like, okay, so that's the conference he went to. That's why he was busy. Maybe Adira, the actor, just had other commitments and couldn't be in a full episode. True. Or Or maybe something was on the cutting room floor. Sure. Yeah, there are all those possibilities. Yeah, so it might not be anything weird. It just might be, who knows, something happened. Or maybe since Adira was the focus of last week's episode, they just want to take the focus off Adira this week and focus on the rest of Discovery. Yeah. Um, 
I'm trying to figure out what to talk about next because there's a whole B plot here. Well, we haven't, yeah, we haven't talked about the seed ship at all. Yeah, because um, ultimately, I feel like that was the, that was the B plot for this thing. Even if we lost a character to it. <laughs> yeah, I. So they they go to the seed ship. It's run by a family of Barzans. Uh, the spouse and children have died and the husband is the father is still there and uh non decides to stay behind and make sure that the barzan uh, species completes its contract of being the steward to this ship for until the next shift begins and i did not expect to lose this character she came all the way to the future just to run a seed ship yeah she was one people like even jarjo asked her why are you here and she's like i just wanted to help out uh and then we get here, like we get a lot of exploration on this character we haven't really seen much of, other than her in the line of duty, like personality-wise. Like, yes, we do, but nothing deep. Like, and so here we finally get like a little bit of exposition. Like, she really misses home. She hasn't seen a Barzan, not counting the time jump, in a long time. Uh, and she's ready to. She wants to uphold the Barzan watch of the seed ship and then go home. Yeah, and apparently her family, I mean, well, first of all, her people are known for two things, diligence and poverty. Yeah, it's weird. Like, yeah, I mean, a whole planet that's impoverished. And so imagine the significance it must have meant to Nan to find out that her planet joined the Federation because there really aren't any impoverished Federation members. No, oh, so something good happened there, uh, uh, I, feel, I feel like. And yet her family was so disappointed when she joined the Federation. Like Michael, I would have thought her family would have been overjoyed that non escaped poverty. I mean, it's like a cork was a little weirded out by Nod going to Starfleet. Uh, Vulcans were upset with stock going spot going to Starfleet. Okay. I guess if you're leaving home, sense. my mom didn't want me to move to Washington and go to video game school. So I, I like, <laughs> Uh, that didn't oh. seem too out of place. Like, like, you're just like you're breaking, you're breaking tradition. Why are you doing this? We're mad at you for doing this. Is a trope that's in a lot of TV shows in life too. Okay, when you put it that way, that makes perfect sense. I hadn't thought of that. Thank you. <sighs> yeah, I like the uh, I like the concept of a seed ship. It seems rather small given its mission, and also it's apparently a thousand years old. Yeah, that means it was built very shortly after the creation of the Federation. Yeah, but you think that for such an important mission, I mean, it's basically Noah's Ark, that they would keep it pretty well maintained. And why is it a ship? That sounds more dangerous than just being on a planet. Yeah. It's, there are questions about the existence of this that don't necessarily make sense other than a concept, which is cool, because we have seed vaults here on the planet, on Earth, in real right. life. So oh, I yeah, think yeah, it's a con- Yeah, so I think it's a concept that's cool. Um flying around space and there's a lot of dangers out there even like coronal mass injection er, ejections <laughs> that still damage ships yeah uh, solar burps come on yeah i don't know it, it is a little weird of a concept unless in the old days it would warp around but even then like what if the wrong hands get this it's it's a little weird i the only reason i can think of it to be a ship is that it can more easily go to all the different planets it's trying to collect rather than having the planets send their samples to yeah. somewhere else but you're right it just seems very prone to risk. Yeah. And so, I mean, there might be more out there. I don't know. Yeah. It, it's a little weird, but it's a cool concept. Yeah. I don't have too much to say about what happened on the ship, even though in some ways it took up a large chunk of the episode. I do like how they got there 
which was Michael's first command, which is not exceptional for somebody who is the second in command of a starship, but that's a new position for her. And this is her first opportunity to act in Saru's absence. Uh, right when you said that, like, I agree it's her first command, but I was thinking like, I rewatched Discovery season one about a month or two ago. Like, no, she had command of the Shenzo for about yeah, 30 yeah, yeah. seconds uh, before <laughs> she was, uh, arrested, but no, um, this uh, is her first real command. Well, even I, when I was watching this episode, even I was thinking it's her first time in command without subduing her commander. <laughs> Very mutant, you made her universe concept. Um, yeah, ascension through assassination. <laughs> but uh, it was cool to see her do that. I mean, like they gave her the cool dramatic moments of standing in the middle of the bridge, looking right at the camera and say black alert. Uh, with her hands yes. right there and just doing all very professional looking thing. But we got to see her in command, which is really cool. I've wanted to grab that as a screenshot because she's so her, her, her posture is great. She's centered on the screen. It's a great view of the bridge. And I, I just love that cinematography. I'm doing this app called one second every day where I shoot one second of video every day. So that at the end of the year, I have a six minute video that encapsulates every day of the whole year. <laughs> and so I try to get out of the house and do something fun and interesting every day because I don't want six minutes of Netflix loading screens at the end of the year. <laughs> but right now I'm in a two-week self-quarantine, and so I'm not getting out much. So that was the most significant thing that happened to me that day was watching Discovery. And I grabbed that little clip of her saying Black Alert, which is the first time she's ever said that, as my one second of the day. Nice. And I'm sure that now that I've said that on the record, Paramount is going to come after me and sue me for copyright. <laughs> Take down. Notice. <laughs> DMCA on my memories. <laughs> we didn't allow you to incorporate that into your neural engrams. <laughs> How dare you? Um, but, but this whole sea ship thing, it, it was a subplot, but and we got to see like the tried and true transporter accident caused him to be phased a little bit here and there. <laughs> Uh, I mean, that's a classic story. They fix it real quick. Uh, we get to see uh, Jet, Tilly, and uh, um, Stamets, Stamets. Uh, Paul working together in their <laughs> their weird way, which didn't push the story. No, was it a fun character moment? Yes. I, uh, I know what dumb means. I don't need to translate it. <laughs> and, and I love how Commander Willow says, despite the dysfunction, you work well as a team. And their response is, dysfunction is the team. We've just accepted it. No, we haven't. <laughs> And th- that, that little bit was also the show, not only the funny bit, but like, okay, the new Federation, the current Federation is figuring out like, okay, these people are real. They're not some weirdo. They are some weirdos, but they're not <laughs> some uh, bad guys. So there is a series of novels set in the TNG era called the Starfleet Corps of Engineers. Mm-hmm. And it focuses, as you can imagine, specifically on engineers. I would love like a whole episode of Discovery that is just the three of them. Like, they go on an away mission to salvage some ship or save some planet from some uh, normal natural or technological disaster. And it's just Tilly, Stamets, and Jet. Just like for the whole episode. I want that as my A-plot. Just reading Technobabble left and right. And just getting on each other's nerves and loving it. <laughs> I would totally yes, read that yes. or watch that. I mean, I've had workplaces like that. Uh, one of my favorite coworkers ever. We were dysfunctional, uh, but we did such a great, we had great teamwork together. Uh, that was one of the very few times I loved going to work with that, uh, you know, with the old job. Oh, that sounds fun. I don't, I mean, I have great coworkers as well. I don't know that I've ever had that experience simultaneously with being dysfunctional. <laughs> 
And usually it's either, either one or the other. <laughs> oh. uh, so yeah, uh, seed vault. Uh... By, by the way, this does oh, mean uh... that the limitations and accidents to which transporters are prone a thousand years ago have still not been solved. Like, nope. You would think that maybe the transporter could scan local suns for potential solar burps. And then if it detects one, it says, transportation is not available at this time. Please try again later. <laughs> um, so they fixed holographic technology, but not transporter technology. Well, even holograms are almost very obviously holograms. Like these holograms seem less personable than the doctor from Voyager. That and the what the... E everything H's from Picard on Rios' ship. Oh, that's right. That's right. Those are so funny. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to go watch Picard again now. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I am curious. So this is a future that has evolved without access to the sphere data. And the sphere data, as we saw last week when it was advising Saru, already seems more personable than the holograms that the Federation has. So I'm wondering what is going to happen to the sphere data. And I'm wondering why the Federation is not keener to reproduce Discovery Spore Drive. And they briefly alluded to that in this episode, that they wanted to uh, dissect it and diagnose it. Or diagnose it. It's, it doesn't solve the problem that there's only one operator right now. There's still just Stamets, and they are looking at possibly a dark matter interface that Tilly proposed. But in the absence of dilithium, Discovery's presence could be vital to the revitalization of the Federation. Mm-hmm. And so I would think that this Admiral guy would be like, you know what? I don't care what timeline you're from. I don't care how much I trust you. I want your technology. And we didn't really see that sort of hunger in this episode no we didn't see that hunger at all but they did say like, we're gonna tear it apart and refit discovery but that's it like, there was no like oh my god you can do what it was just like okay cool all right well that's the resources uh we got things to worry about uh you over there you do this thing and like yeah it's just a yep cool we got a new thank you very much we have a new freaking thing to worry about <laughs> we, have, we have a one-of-a-kind ship and we're gonna keep it that way <laughs> seems very ill-advised uh, let's see. So we said that Adira wasn't much on this episode, but last week Adira was playing the violin of a certain song that the Barzan were also playing in the hologram of themselves on the seed ship. And Michael is suspicious. How can cultures and peoples so far apart in the absence of warp drive all know the same song? And Commander Willa, the, the, the security person Willa from the this Federation was, eh, just gets into the ether. I'm like... My my first thought was uh, all around all around the watchtowers from Battlestar Galactica, <laughs> where that was a song of the silence. Oh, I don't think I got that far into BSG. So uh, I know that they could all hear the same music. Oh, and they didn't know what it was, and it was all along the watchtowers. That sounds awful. <laughs> oh, it's a good song. So, what do, what do you think are the implications here in Discovery? That well, to me, it says like this is clearly somehow related to the burn. Because uh, it's one of those unconnected things. Like, okay, that's part of the bigger grand scheme of things. Like, Michael notices this, and Michael's researching the burn, and Michael's looking for her mom. Which, like, I also did some notes on that because I forgot some things. But back to the music, like, it, yeah, it's all interconnected somehow together in one big plot point. The fact that dilithium still exists in limited quantities indicates that not all dilithium exploded, <clears throat> just the dilithium that was on starships, and starships are 
run by people. And so I'm thinking it was not a molecular instability with the dilithium. I think it was some sort of a mass-coordinated sabotage, kind of like a Manchurian candidate, where I think somehow everybody on every ship made the dilithium explode at the same time, and against their will somehow. But it still doesn't answer the question of how do you coordinate something across such a scale, but I think it was the people. You're catching on to something here that keep alluding to. Michael keeps saying things like the Federation isn't a thing. It's it's people. Everything's connected. Everything here is tied together. Um, like we, Stamets is saying that how, it's impossible for the all Dilithium to blow at the exact same time, which means it was some some kind of constructed thing made by people. Like everything's connected here. Um, there's something here that we're touching on here um, that I don't. We don't have the answers to. How about this? We know that the Telosians could make you think you're pushing one button and when in fact you're self-destructing. And in the TOS episodes, the cage and the menagerie, we saw just how far they can project themselves. What if they decided that the galaxy is safer without warp travel and they made everybody push the wrong buttons? That is also the uh, Giorgio kind of hinted on this, like wh- who basically did the Federation piss off? Right, because um, and also the Telosians have precedent on Star Trek Discovery. They were just on the most recent season, and it's been a thousand years since then. You think nobody has gone back to that planet in all that time? Because yeah, the yeah. Federation may have said it's under death penalty, but how many other species don't care about the Federation's death penalties? And yeah, maybe the Telosians decided to just enact revenge more broadly than who pissed them off. There's something there. And it could be that our villain is someone we've seen before who has a connection to the Federation. Or it's someone we're going to find more information about as the rest of the episode goes on. Like, who are some of the players that we haven't actually seen yet? Like, Spock is possibly a player here. We got, uh, I mean, the bigger one is Michael's mom. Right is an unknown thing here, which I had like, why is she so obsessed with this? Like I had to go back and relearn some of the stuff from season two. Uh, like, Oh, okay. So like, I've forgotten that Michael's mom is somehow tied to quote unquote, the future. And when she got untangled from the, the, the space suit, uh, she got sent back to Terra Elysium, her anchor point, quote unquote, in the future. We don't know exactly when, but I mean, it's it sound, I mean, the way they're alluding to, it's going to be soon. Yeah, we need to get answers about her mom. That's come up a couple of times in this season so far. But also, we are now halfway through this season. This is the end of season five. I'm sorry, episode five out of ten. And so it's getting to be late in the game for them to introduce a new villain. Now, granted, season two, we didn't see control right up front either. You know, that took a while to build out. So maybe it's not too late, but I would like for whoever they introduce to not be cut from the whole cloth at this point. Yeah, because otherwise it's basically related to her mom. The only unseen factor here, the burn is. The Michael Burnham, no. uh. (laughs) (laughs) And I've talked about that, how there should also be a ham if there's a burn. (laughs) And we also don't know what is the tie-in with Calypso. Yeah. So those are big, I think, unseen things that we know exist. We haven't seen or seen much about them yet. Yeah, uh, the tying, There's something there. There's something there. Yeah, we have a lot of questions and not enough answers, which is the nature of Discovery. They're very good about that, and it keeps us hooked to watch more. I mean, I am finding myself 
on the edge of my seat waiting for every Thursday to come because I can't wait to find out what new answers we're going to get, but also what new questions we're going to get. Yeah. So questions seems like a good way to end this episode of Transport Lock, but is there anything else you want to mention before we sign off? Any little notes that we overlooked? Vance and Glasses Guy were treating the burn as if it was a person or people who caused it. So that's just a thing to note. They do have a lot of theories, and at least they have those. Yeah, and like Vance treated it as intelligence and not, at first, and not necessarily like scientific discovery research. And mm. So that's a, a clue. Glasses Guy is kind of like the same thing. Uh, Glasses Guy was played by David Cronenberg. Um, he does body. He was, uh, I wrote down the notes, the originators of body horror. He helped, he directed the fly and did a bunch of like really grotesque things. So I'm like, is this a clue as to his character as well? Or is it more like we just need creepy guy and he does creepy really well? Well, the fly was technically about a transporter. Yeah. I don't think we'll be seeing that crossover. No, probably not. Then just thematically, like cinematography here was like the beginning of this episode starts with, uh, Saru and Michael looking out the window and then it ends that way. I thought that was just some really cool uh, things here, the shots here. I thought that was really awesome to have a reflection at the beginning and a reflection at the end. Yeah, I like that bookmark, that synchronicity. Yeah. Uh, but otherwise, the notes like, no, what's eating Jojo? Uh, Michael's mom. Oh, they keep bringing up Spore Drive. Like, we need to find an alternative to Stamets. And here, Vance is like, all right, we're going to do a refit. Uh, so that's going to become a part of something here. We're going to get more to that, too. I mean, if they do develop that dark matter interface, then this becomes easier to replicate to other Federation starships and will be core to rebuilding the Federation. Yeah, so that's that's another thing that we're going to see more on later. Uh, but that's it for most of my notes here, I think. Cool. Yeah, I don't have anything else to add other than I am digging where this season is going. I like that it's in the future. I want to see some sort of a tie-in to the past, but at the same time, I appreciate how freeing it is to be so far in the future because they're not beholden to, like, th- this discovery has never heard of, as I mentioned, Janeway, but also, like, Picard and Kirk and Cisco, and, like, they don't know who the founders are, the, the Kazon, Talax, n- even the Ferengi. Like, this is all, well, no, the Ferengi originally appeared on Enterprise. No, they didn't know them. Discovery. They didn't have a name for them. Right. But yeah, there's just so much that you and I know as viewers, but which is new to Discovery. And I just hope that they keep that in mind as they go, where these are things that it's not just being so far into the future of Star Trek that's new to this crew. It's also being in the future of Discovery. Like, TOS, TNG, DS9, Voyager. It's all their future. It's all things you and I know that they don't, despite being the year 3000. So that's sort of a a disconnect. And it hasn't been an issue yet, and I hope it continues to be a non-issue. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And also the episode Die Trying. I I think the name of this episode just refers to how the father on the seed ship would not give up. He was trying to save his family, even though they were already gone. And he did not want to come back even after he was saved from the transporter malfunction. He was there for good. And this is the kind of thing that the Federation is all about. You commit yourself to something. And that means you're committing your body, your life and your soul. You are going to do this thing and you're going to see it through. And that's something that not embodied. She said, I'm going to see this through after this guy is gone because he is going to die trying 
and it's my place as one of his kin to pick up that torch. I'm glad you brought that up because that was one of my notes. I'm like, what is up with the weird episode titles this season? Uh. <laughs> I, think, I think the episode titles this season make a lot more sense than like season one where, what was it like conscience is for Kings or something or foreshadowing is for Kings. Um, uh, but like this season, the first episode was that hope is you. And that's a line Burnham said to Booker in the first episode. But uh, like the part one, Yes, that is weird. I that's, agree that's, on that. That's what, yeah, or even like we have Unification Three coming up. Like, well, well, yes, these things aren't going to make sense until we see the show, so we can speculate. But like, Far From Home was when um, Discovery landed on the ice planet. That was that was their first experience in the future. So they were far from home. People of Earth is when they went to Earth. Forget Me Not is all about rega- reclaiming the memories of the Trill symbiont. So those names, once we see them, make sense. But you're right. Future episodes like Unification 3, The Sanctuary, Terra Firma, The Citadel, The Good of the People Outside, I cannot infer anything from those names about what these episodes might be about. I think the weirdness is some of these are like parts of expressions, but not the whole one. Or they they feel incomplete. Mm. Like, hope is you part one. Uh, we we are like we used to hear like people of Earth like it's an announcement it's like some alien who's going to continue on a sentence or usually we hear or die trying. Oh uh, right, that's true. And so it's like the episode titles feel incomplete in some interesting way, and it's not necessarily bad. It's just I, it's it's a hang up. It's like that's the title yeah. really. <laughs> I'm sorry. The the name of the season one episode three of Discovery was Context is for Kings, but I'm also thinking about Picard where. We had to look up like S in Arcadia Ego. <laughs> yeah. Like it's an entirely different language. And then we had to realize like, oh, it means that even in this futuristic utopia, there is still strife and death. And Calypso, you know, I, I think they eventually worked that into the episode. And Obal for Sharon is the episode where the sphere died and gave its data <laughs> to the discovery. I mean, though, yeah, I, I feel like they like their Greek and Latin. Yeah, I mean, some of the names make more sense. There was Project Daedalus and the Red Angel. You know, those are very obvious names for Discovery Season 2 episodes. Even Daedalus is another Greek thing, so they're Latin things. Oh, that's so. true. That's true. But it at least referred to something in episode. Yeah. You know, they actually had a project called Daedalus. So I feel like the arc of the intelligibility of their episode names is improving, at least. <laughs> cool. Uh, Oh, oh, super quick. Culber is more empathic. He, this actor is amazing at the empathy. And him talking to Michael uh, on the seed ship is amazing. I just love this guy. I'm getting, I'm loving this character more and more and more. Oh, yeah. Where he said, you have to go tell this guy his family is dead. Because you're an outsider and he'll listen to you. Yeah, but I just like, Culber, Culber is such an empathic pseudo-psychiatrist here in the in this season. And he just does so well. Like, yeah, and and he's got this smile when he does it that could be seen as a smirk, but from him it's just so warm. Yeah, yeah. Wilson Cruz is showing his he's showing some great range in this series. Like I didn't know him before, really, but he's showing some amazing acting in the series and Discovery just in general, and I love it. Oh, and one more thing is I kind of thought that Kayla Detmer, by acknowledging her PTSD, would in TV magic suddenly solve it as well. But we see this week she's still struggling with that, even yeah. though she's aware of it. Yeah. So good on good on Star Trek. 
Oh, and if we're ready to move off Discovery, one last note before we go. I've been trying to watch a lot of Chadwick Boseman movies lately. Uh-huh. Which, sadly, there weren't more of. But I rewatched Black Panther. A couple months ago, I watched Marshall, where he played Thurgood Marshall. Last week, I watched Get On Up, where he plays the musician James Brown. And last night, I watched 21 Bridges, where he plays an original character. It's a thriller where he's a New York detective trying to catch some cop killers. And it wasn't until I was watching the credits after the show, the movie was over, that I realized a small but important part in that movie was played by Alexander Siddig. Oh, cool. Yeah. Dr. Bashir from DS9. So I went and rewatched that scene. It, it's clearly him now that I know what to look for. But I hadn't seen him in 20 years. I know he's on other things. I just haven't seen them. He had short hair, a salt and pepper beard, and he was wearing a bathrobe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Bashir we all know. Exactly. <laughs> but, but like, I just tried to ignore all that and listen to his voice. And I was like, oh, my God, that is so Dr. Bashir. I love it. <laughs> Awesome. So it was, it was nice. It was an unexpected and pleasant surprise to see him again. <laughs> so, all right. So that's it for this week of Transporter Lock. The next episode will be next week, and the episode title will be Scavengers. So who knows where they're sending Discovery because they go when and where the Federation tells them. And we will be here to review it. Until then, hit it. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com. The phrase, like dad joke, like blew up. Sometime in the last decade or so. Does your dad tell bad jokes? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it feels like a stereotype of dads. That, that's true. I don't know. I just, like I'm saying, that's, that, I'm not contesting that it exists. I'm, contest, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm just pointing out that I noticed the phrase got heavy, heavy use in the vernacular in the last decade or so. Well, I'm looking at Urban Dictionary, and a lot of the definitions come from around like 2013 or so. It's an indescribably cheesy or dumb joke made by a father to his children. And, you know, here's another definition from 2015. A joke make, a joke which makes son or family members facepalm because of how simple it is. Oh, here's one from 2004, an embarrassingly bad joke, often demonstrated mm-hmm. during wedding or 21st birthday speeches. <laughs> so it seems like, like we're saying, it's always been there, but it finally got a name around the, the early teens. Well, let me look up Wikipedia, because Wikipedia gives the history of something. Let's see. While the exact origin of the term dad joke is unknown, a writer for the Gettysburg Times wrote an impassioned defense of the genre in June 1987 (laughs) under the headline, Don't Ban the Dad Jokes, Preserve and Revere Them. Interesting. The term dad jokes received mentions in the American sitcom How I Met Your Mother in 2008. In September 2019, Merriam-Webster added dad joke to the dictionary. So I wonder if it was more like a regional thing somewhere and then it started growing and then it started getting used like in a TV show and then it started blowing up. That seems likely. I mean, a lot of our life imitates art. So when something becomes popular on a TV show, we all pick it up. You know, like how often do we quote Seinfeld, even though the show's been off the air for decades? Yeah. What's the deal with airplane peanuts?